welcome to the Bio Breakdown Podcast. On this podcast, we break down interviews with researchers, authors, and professionals in order to make them more accessible and digestible for everyday people. I'm your host, Chris Vanity. Uh, as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Randall. Hello, everyone. And my producer, Max. This week, we're going to be speaking uh, with a friend of mine, Chase Gilbert, who is an ichthyologist who specializes in geometric morphometrics. Chase, welcome to the party. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Chase, big idea that we like to push here is that science and biology is for everybody, and, um, you know, there are ways to get into it from all ages. You know, if you have the interest and the passion to get there, you can pursue it and kind of make your way. So when did you know that you wanted to be a scientist and particularly a biologist? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty um, uh, involved question, I suppose. Um, I guess when I was a kid, I was really, um, I really liked animals anyway. Uh, it's something that I've always really been interested in. Um, but more importantly, I think, was I was always very curious about how things work uh, mechanically. Um, I My parents used to buy me all kinds of models and things to put together, and I'd spend tedious amounts of time putting these, putting these little complicated models to, to work. And um, I'd take apart computers and just... I, I could never put them back together. But, <laughs> but um, that was always a lot of fun for me. Um, I also had, you know, my, my family um, always encouraged me to be outdoors. And I, my grandfather um, spent a lot of time with me fishing and, uh, you know, helping me collect little minnows out of the creek and the stream behind our homes and things. And so those, those kind of things always really fascinated me. Um, yeah. As far as, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, it's just, it's a common thread. So far, we've spoken mostly with ecologists and just kind of a, a lifelong passion of interacting with nature and just childish, uh, you know, pursuit of all the critters we can get our hands on is something that, that's pretty common. Yeah, and like, like their, your dad, dads and grandpas and like even mothers, like, you know, introducing their, their kids at an early age. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Theme. Yeah, I I think that that can be a, a very powerful way to get people involved in and you know especially kids. Um, uh, you know when I and as far as when I got into science, I suppose um, when I was in high school, I I something about biology just really appealed to me, and I I was very interested because it was more of this how does how do these things work? And I was I was really driven to understand that. And I wanted to be a um, high school biology teacher for a long time. And when I began, you know, my junior year, I I was involved in a in a lab, in a fisheries ecology lab. Well, more aquatic ecology in general. But I was given a lot of really good opportunities to um, learn the scientific method and apply it. I guess more importantly, um, uh, was this uh, was this lab like affiliated with your so you said high school right yeah was it affiliated with your high school no no no. so um it was it was uh it was uh they weren't directly affiliated no um the the high school that i went to was an hour away from the university i attended okay so um it was 
uh, I went to the university because it was convenient, close to home, and it was a it was a, a really good university that I could go to that was um, accessible for me. That's awesome. cool. So, when you got to college, how did you kind of get yourself into the research track? Um, I think that's something people who want to pursue that just you know. They don't realize how easy it can be or, you know, how complicated it can be, depending on the circumstances, right? Certainly. Um, yeah, so um, I, our department head at the time at my university, um, uh, I had spoken to him as a transfer student. I was transferring in my junior year. I had went to a community college before that. And I had spoken to him about my interest in, um, you know, wanting to get involved in some lab work and have that experience. And he encouraged me to um, talk to my undergraduate, my future undergraduate mentor. Um, and it just so happened to work out that our department head was the ichthyologist for the university. <laughs> So um, he may have been a little biased, but he knew my interest, and I had an interest in fish going in um, that was per- primarily driven through a class that I took um, at the last semester of, uh, of getting, when I was getting my associates. I took a zoology class there, and I was kind of blown away at the diversity of fishes um, compared to some of the other vertebrate groups. Mm-hmm. And it was... Um, just really fascinating to me to see all these different shapes and types of, of fishes uh, and I so I, 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 he pointed me in the right direction I would I would say that uh, uh, fishes are probably the most diverse group of vertebrates right well absolutely yeah absolutely so I think um, I think fish base says now that there are like 34 35 thousand species of fishes which if you combine all the other vertebrate groups um they they are still not um more in number than the than the fishes wow that's insane that's pretty amazing and they say like most of the ocean is like uncharted yeah yeah well it could be more well yeah, I mean, I, I well, you got well. I don't, I don't want to speak uh, out of my area of expertise. <laughs> Although most of the ocean might not be as explored, I think most of the biodiversity hotspots, right, the coral reefs, are yeah. pretty well charted. Mm-hmm. So that's where the most species are, right? Um, Potent- yeah. pro- most, most probably. I could, yeah, I mean, it, it would fit in the normal ecological sense, right? That these uh, tropical zones are able to accommodate the largest number of species. Um, but we are learning a lot about the deep sea these days, so who knows what we'll, who knows what we'll find. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, what were you going to say? Was, well, yeah, um, it's hard to go deep in the sea. Uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 there's, there's no lights, uh, you need a lot of tech to go down there, and it costs a lot of money, so um, there might be less species down there, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, that's something that fascinates me a whole lot. Just yeah. what, what's down there? Yeah, just yeah, uh, I think yeah. It fascinates a lot of people. Get get James Cameron on the horn. Have him take you down. You'll you'll see some stuff that will blow your mind for sure. <laughs> I'm not going nowhere. I'll be up top. He's up in the boat waiting for him. So you transferred in, and then you found someone in the faculty of that university that was passionate about like 
facilitating your your interests and and helping you along. And I think that's a big thing for a lot of people. I know in my undergrad, I actually did fish fish research as well, and I just happened into that um, uh, because the head of the department also. I took his summer class after my freshman year, and he he's a ichthyologist as well. And then, you know, once you Wait, get in, uh, what? Oh, I was just gonna say, Doctor Naden, yeah. Oh, uh, well, uh, he was one of the people that uh, I ended up getting to know pretty well. But uh, mine was uh, Doctor Wood. Okay. But okay. he he was. Uh, it, it's important to find those mentors when you Absolutely. want to pursue it, and then just find someone you mesh with. Who also has a similar interest to you, or who will be your like, you know, your foundation to build off of, and uh, that's really important when you're trying to develop yourself as a scientist. I would say. I would absolutely agree, and I, I think that um, in my personal experience, I think I've been very lucky to have, um, you know, all of my mentors that I've had over the past, gosh, I don't know, seven, eight years have been extremely encouraging and. and and um, accommodating for me and, and my questions and uh, I think that that's taken me a long way in wanting to stay in this field um, you know you hear stories about people maybe not getting the best mentor not having a supportive mentor and you know there's so many cool people out there doing really cool work that are super awesome you know that, that are accommodating and, and genuinely want to help you develop and I think that for somebody starting out it's, it's important for them to know that they can shop around and find people that are that are awesome to work with. They don't have to suffer through something. No, 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 no. I'm not going to say that. I would not say well, that ever. Um, it's, all about making, <laughs> it's all about making connections. It is. Networking like, is a huge, huge. In, in all aspects of life, you know. At the gym, we know air conditioner guy and <laughs> random dad. So if we ever need uh, an AC fix or, or a random dad, or a random dad. <laughs> at the bar, we know uh, English sheepdog guy, and most importantly, the bar owner. Um, and then now, you know, in science, networking is a huge thing. Getting out to conferences or even within your own department, just kind of getting to know people, volunteering to do their yard work, uh, just just to hear their you know tales from from the field is is something. <laughs> I enjoyed. And you have tales from their field doing their yard work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so you've, you found your path, you found your groove, you got in there, and you developed yourself into a particular discipline, which is geometric morphometrics. Now that sounds like an insanely complicated topic or, or concept just yeah. on the words, right? And we, we want to dispel the myth that complicated words need to be scary. Um, that's one of the things we want to take yeah. concepts and just like break them yeah. down, right? That's in the title. It's so could you, uh, what were you going to say, Roger? Or Randall? It's, it's, myth, <laughs> it's myth busting time. <laughs> oh, myth busting time. <laughs> Hashtag not a, not a trademark violation. Oh. Um, <laughs> so could you break down what, what that concept of geometric morphometrics is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so as with most, most things in science, we like to, to use Greek and Latin to, <laughs> to make it more uniform within science. And you're absolutely right. It is, it is a problem when you go outside of science. But very simply, the word morphometrics can be breaking down into um, two words, which is shape and measurement or to measure shape. So 
what um, what the, the 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 field is ultimately trying to accomplish is a way to um, quantitatively or statistically um, um, analyze shape differences or or differences in form of organisms, um, and this can be between species within pop or between populations. Um, uh, it can be used for human studies over over the past several hundreds of thousands of years for um, you know our, our, our ancestors or, or whatever there's a it's a very a very diverse there's a very diverse um, uh, suite of, 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 of fields that it can be applied to and it's, it's really more of a tool to be used. Yeah, I had never heard of it until uh, I met you, and then you're just like <laughs> plugging along on a computer. I don't know what's going on, and then I'm like, oh well, it's pretty pretty interesting concept here. So, particularly, you're a man who loves fish, right? Uh, yes, that's you, absolutely true. I'm a huge fish nerd. Do you like eating fish too? Just a little side top, topic here. Oh yeah, absolutely. I uh, I'm. Heck uh, yes. It's too, I'm too much of an evolutionary biologist. <laughs> you know, eat, 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 eat fish, or uh, yeah, you, you eat your work. Rock on, man. That's just like uh, didn't Darwin travel travel around and just eat novelty animals just all oh, over the place? <laughs> I can't say for certain, but I I know that they dined on tortoises and the Galapagos. <laughs> I know uh, what one of my research research mentors um, said that when he was in graduate school. They had like a party, and everyone had to bring a dish made out of their study organisms. Oh man! Jeez. And so it's like, oh, this is uh, this is a fresh roadkill, or <laughs> the guys are studying deer. They come out in deer season, you know, find their uh, deer season. Somebody, yeah. you know, might be studying fire ants. You throw those babies in a frying pan and I'd cook them up. Spicy enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I work in a restaurant, and we just, we just got a uh, camel. Camel burgers in. Are you serious? Yes. I'm gonna have to head up there. No, no, we're not selling them. We oh. uh, we, got, we got a sample. Okay. Of these camel okay. burgers. Are they good? Um, they. All right. I didn't like them. <laughs> and no one really liked them. I think you got way too much hump meat. Probably. They were described as like as like eating a ball of rubber bands. Like, oh man! It well, was like. Oh. I don't know. Ah, that sounds like hump meat to me, dude. It sounds like fatty and greasy. <laughs> it was like kind of gamey. Oh, dude. You guys, well, it's impossible. Not my cup of tea. It's impossible, but you need to get some, uh, some, some Vildebeest or Eland. That's the way to go. Um, but, Morphometrics, how have you used that in your career? Like, what kind of research questions are you investigating? And then what kind of information can you uh, gain with this tool? Sure. Um, so... The kinds of questions that I am generally interested in are how does the environment or how do differences in ecological parameters um, influence the form and function or the shape of, uh, of, of, of populations of, of um, species or populations of, um, of animals. Um, I'm really interested in how an organism's anatomy may change in response to some new ecological pressure or or maybe even um, through something like hybridization or um, you can even use these this tool to kind of tease apart 
um, taxonomic relationships. How closely related are these two species based on some, you know, morphometric or shape component? Awesome, dude. There's like so much to kind of dive into there. Yeah. Because you're, you're talking about both different scales of time as well yep. as like, uh, almost like scales in metaphysical space, meaning the comparison between like species, right? Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, the, the, a big component of what I have done in the past and what I'm currently doing is using this tool to look at how, um, isolated populations have changed um, in response to that isolation. And a lot of the times, the, 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 the isolation that I'm concerned with has been caused by human means. So, um, so I've been working on a project for a few years now um, on Pecos pupfish. Uh, I'm sure you're more than familiar with what I've done with them. But, um, you know, years, uh, several years ago, uh, you know, a, early 1900s, the, these fish were um, uh, isolated, mainly because, uh, you know, we diverted large amounts of water in the desert where these fish uh, are native to, uh, and we've dammed off some, some streams, and, and now we have isolated populations of, of these pupfish that can no longer, you know, breed with one another. They're no longer in contact, um, and so... These different populations have, over time, become uh, different ecologically. You know, they have different food sources. They have different water conditions. They have different predators or competitors. Some are completely, uh, you know, alone with just that one species there, and some have, you know, a few different species that are competing with them for resources and breeding habitat and these kinds of things. So, those different ecological pressures can force a population to change to accommodate said ecological pressures and that's that's one of the applications that i've that's one of the questions um well it's a suite of questions that i've been trying to tackle using a morphometric approach so th these are in uh, where in the u.s so these are in the southwest um throughout new mexico and texas right and these little fish you should you guys should look them up the the picos pupfish first of all they're adorable little national treasures. That's that's first what you gotta know. Not <laughs> only not only are they of like conservation concern, but they are just like a cute little fish. You gotta save these fish. Now, it is incredible what you were saying about how there are different pressures that can cause different effects, like different changes within the populations, right? Um were you were you saying that they could change based on like food availability and like how long does that take or like yeah how long do these changes take to manifest in these different populations so that is a very interesting question <laughs> um so yeah so Let's use that that as a perfect example. What are these fish? Can can what a fish is eating um, force force it to change shape? Uh, and, the, and the answer is absolutely. Um, so with uh, if, if you can imagine, for example, I can I can even divert this to, to some studies that we do right now. Um, you know, a lot of people use. And us included, we use a feeding a feeding experiment. 
So you take, you know, a fish, you take, you know, you, you take two groups of fish and separate them and you force one to feed off of some benthic substrate, some, something sitting on the bottom of the tank where it has to go down and, and either scrape it off the, a rock or, 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 you know, uh, suction feed it off the bottom. And then in the other tank, you give it flakes or some kind of floating food that it can nip at or it can feed through um, ramming into it. Um, so those those are two very different um, functions, right? Right, um, right. something off or biting into it or ramming into it or creating suction pressure to pull it into your mouth. Those are very different mechanically those are two different, those are very different um, uh, concepts. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, uh, so quick question, does the fish change in that generation, or does it have to, or does it change in, like, the offspring? So, uh, that is also a really good question. Um, so, a fish can change within its generation. Um, fish are really cool to study in this capacity because they're extremely plastic, and it allows them to... Um, re- quickly respond to their environment. Um, so we've we've done experiments in the past that, that that use feeding trials like what I just described, and you can show that you know um, you know bone structure has changed bef- from before treatment to the after treatment. Wow, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, so fish are really cool in this capacity because they're able to quickly remodel their bone. You know, fish. Fish have indeterminate growth, so they grow until they die. Um, that obviously depends on a suite of environmental and genetic factors. Right. But generally, you know, a healthy fish will grow until it dies, which allows for it to com- to continually remodel its its bone as needed if it's a genetically healthy fish. Um, I guess genetically healthy isn't very clear, but yeah, uh, that's that's crazy. I didn't know that I. I've never really put that whole picture together in my mind, in my mind before. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's some incredible. Could you, like just to repeat for for listeners and you know maybe maybe someday they'll call themselves fans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that was sarcasm, hundred uh, percent. I want everybody to know that fish can change their form, like the form as in how. For example, their jaw could be configured based on bone structure in their own lifetime based on what kinds of food are available and how they have to use their jaw to feed, right? That's, that's, that's incredible. I want to make it completely clear though, you know, you're not going to see, um, you're not going to see something like, um, a pufffish, right? (laughs) Change its mouth to look like a seahorse. Right, yeah. that takes millions of years of evolution. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're talking about small changes that um, that that tend to accommodate that that lifestyle more easily, um, and th- those little changes um, are are prime candidates for for being picked up using morphometrics. <clears throat> wow. Um. Just curious, what's the typical life uh, span of this fish? Um, you know, I don't remember right off the top of my head. If I had to guesstimate, I, I would think about two, three years. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I don't, that is, that is a guess, uh, right off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I don't I, know if any 
long-term life history studies have been done on Pecos pupfish. Uh, I know some people have kept them in the aquariums for several years, but fish tend to live longer in aquariums than they do in their habitat. Yeah, where there's species. actual predators. Alright, here's a question I have. Yeah. Do, you think, do you think that uh, these fish, or fish in general, um, evolve faster and adapt to their environment quicker because they can change this fast? Is that... Uh, are, you, are you saying, like, do you think there's more variation in species because they can change? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, you know, like, yeah, exactly. It's evolve, evolve quicker and adapt to new environments faster. And just, that's why there's more species of fish, possibly. Like, do you think that's a, a stretch? I mean, I, it could certainly contribute. You know, we're talking about millions of years worth of evolution here, and these small little changes, you know, will accumulate in populations over time. That's that's that's, that's like the textbook definition of evolution, I suppose. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, I, I suppose it could contribute to it, and I'm certain that it does. But again, we're talking about massive time periods here, and we're talking about. Um, I mean, it's the it's the ocean, right? Uh, <laughs> we're talking. I mean, it's a massive, massive, um, complex series of connected habitats. And when we want to talk about you know speciation, um, I think it's important to to discuss something like ecological niches or um, things that can be exploited. There's there's all these different kinds of systems that can be exploited. Fish, another, you know, reason that fish, I think, have, you know, been able to become so diverse is they haven't been as heavily influenced by these, you know, large-scale terrestrial phenomenons over the past, you know, several millions of years. Um, you know, uh, so I think that's probably certainly contributed to their diversity. Um, with that being said, you know, you, North America is a, is a really great example because you can see fish diversity, uh, decrease drastically once you, once you hit the, um, the, the, the boundary of the last glaciation. Um, you know, northern United States, northern, northern, all of North America, the northern half of it has fewer species in the south, and that's, that's a prime candidate for why. Yeah. What, 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 like, what could you use as an example as, uh, for, like, terrestrial phenomenon that influences, uh, land dwelling species as opposed to, um, you know, aquatic species? Um, well, the first thing that came to mind was, was probably the, the, the big asteroid, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, it wiped out a lot of terrestrial species, kind of reshaped the, the 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 reptile mammal dominance, and and um, so you know fish were a little less susceptible to that because uh, of the ocean. Um, and but I you know it, it it would be ignorant of me to say that that they weren't affected by something like that. <laughs> Just not not as greatly as right. Definitely right. not as large reptiles roaming, <laughs> you know, roaming around uh, the continents. Yeah. Right. I so, Chris, what are your thoughts? You're a biologist too. Oh, I'm a biologist. Um, well, you know, I'm not a. I'm. I have long since left the realm of fishes, although I will always have a passion for fishes. <laughs> um, 
One thing that I wanted to bring up, uh, which I think would be like fascinating for people to, to, to learn about, is last week we had um, a good friend of mine, Kyle Maiden, who's an aquarium hobbyist, and we kind of discussed the intersection of, of biology and ecology with a hobby, and, you know, that is keeping fish. Well, you have a, another biology-centric hobby yourself, and that is uh, clearing and staining specimens. Now, the first time I encountered anything like that, I, I think I was in the uh, Toronto Science Museum. Is either, is either, I don't know if that's the official title. It was the Science <laughs> Museum in Toronto. It could be anything from the Royal Science Museum of Canada to Toronto Science Museum. I don't know. I was young. But the, I saw they had in a window that was lit up, um, they had jars of specimens and their bones were dyed different colors. Uh, could you kind of explain what clearing and staining specimens is, and then what kind of practical use is there to doing that? Sure. So um, clearing and staining, um, at least in the anatomical sense, there, there are several different, um, as I'm sure you know, um, there are several different things that you can stain in, a, in an organism, right? We, we've been messing with different ways to... To, to better and understand and visualize structures and organisms for a very long time. Clearing and staining in the anatomical sense and what we're talking about mm-hmm. um, involves, um, you know, taking a, a, a preserved animal that's collected and fixed and staining the cartilage um, a blue color with um, a, a dye called alcyon and the bone... Um, or any other calcified tissue red with uh, a dye called alizarin. Alizarin? It's alizarin red, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, alizarin red. It sounds like a RPG item. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it might be in somebody's somebody's uh, uh, game or something. Um so yeah, you, you you stain you stain bone red and cartilage blue, and um, during throughout the process, you're you're also um, clearing the animal with an enzyme called trypsin. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it kind of just it so it's just an enzyme breaking things down, but um, what it's allowing you to do later is. Um, uh, you know, once you immerse it in, in something like glycerin, which is just like vegetable oil, essentially, uh, the tissue absorbs that and it gives the illusion that it's, it's invisible. Um, so it allows you to see all those bones and the cartilages that you stained, um, relatively clearly. Right. Wow. So the body is more or less physically intact. It's just the, the muscle and the fatty tissues. Right. The organs are clear, and then the bones and cartilage are stained different colors. So this yeah, can be used for like scientific purposes. It sounds like right, and it kind of sounds a little a little artsy. Right. So this yeah. would this is a perfect example of like hashtag sci art, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> As one might good. say. Well, I like to think of it that way. Right. So. I think it's important uh, to do things like that. Where at first I didn't know how to how to perceive it. I was like, "Man, that that looks really cool," but then I'm like, "Oh, you know, all of these specimens had to die just to make like an art display." Yeah. But when you learn kind of the background and and the purposes, and that there are 
other ways to get specimens for this kind of thing than just like you you don't go outside and like murk yeah. a frog to, to, <laughs> to like stain and clear it you yeah, know you're what not I'm saying in the, <laughs> the shallow water yeah so there, there's really like that lack of once the moral reprehensibility goes away of that you literally just like killed a bird to stain and clear it uh you kind of it becomes much more interesting yeah right and yeah, I, th- uh, I think, it, what were you going to say? Sorry? Oh, nothing. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think it would be it, it, it would be a cool way to reach a lot of people who do have that kind of art mentality, artist mentality, um, and they're interested in that kind of thing, and it, see just kind of, like you said, the mechanization or the inner workings of different animals, and just kind of put those two things together. Yeah. We have, we have skeletons in the classroom. Yeah. We need, we need we need more. We have skeletons in the closets, fish, obviously. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, well, you can never have enough fishes or fish skeletons. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there are different different mentalities that people have, and and I'm glad that you brought up you know ethical considerations because that is um you know in, in science we I like to think that almost everybody does have an ethic you know a moral compass and and goes about doing things ethically and um there is a, a relatively large hobby for clearing and staining uh well i say large but it's maybe just because i'm in it <laughs> there, there are there are people who clear and stain and you know i've never met um i'm not saying they're not out there but i've never met somebody within this this particular it, it's for a you know for a hobby purpose that um, is routinely going out and murdering hundreds of thousands of animals. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I have collected animals in the past to um, clear and stain, and the, 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 the big rationale for me is that I, I really want to better understand how these animals work. I, um, I think that this is a wonderful educational yeah. tool that we can use that is... Um, like you said, that can has the potential to be appealing to many people, whether you're a scientist or not. And um, I I enjoy seeing people embrace the the artistic side of science because science is it, and it can be an art form in many cases. And I think people Definitely. forget that. I, I 100% agree in both hey, yeah. both points. So so you you do this. Um, on, the, on the side, that's what you're saying. I do like, it both professionally and on the side. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, what? Sorry, what were you oh, going to say, was, Chase? I was just going to say um, I clear and stain almost every single day for research purposes. Um, oh wow! The diversity of animals that I stain on a daily basis for those purposes is much smaller. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I do have people send me animals on occasion that have found that they have collected from museums over the years that may have been getting rid of specimens, or uh, people have sent me their pets to clear and stain for them, which I, I do and send them back. And that's fascinating. That's, uh... How much do you charge, like, <laughs> charge for that? It depends on the animal. Because, uh, I have a horse. Some take a lot longer than others. I can do some, you know, it, it really, what, what's really amazing about this process to me is that um, every species stains differently. Every taxa stains a little differently. Uh, and then 
you can even stain two individuals that are the same species and maybe even the same age, exactly the same durations, take them through the exact same process, and they'll each turn out differently. And um, I think that what's so fascinating about that is that it shows that you know these organisms have potentially these two individuals, even though they're the same species, may have undergone very different environmental conditions and have developed in different ways and have different genetics, and so therefore they're they're going to have different expressions of of, of maybe bone or um, maybe have slightly different shapes. Yeah. Um, so it, it it is a it is a unique process to kind of work yourself through, but. It sounds yeah. very complicated. Like, like you get into it, and then it really is not. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to, you know, I want to to get rid of this. I've seen people say that this is an extremely complicated process that only professionals can do. And it, well, it just, maybe the process is easy, but like, if every animal stands differently, you got to have a knack for it. You got to have like a little. It does take some learning. Yes, it's a learning curve. Once you get I that. have ruined many specimens over the years, <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know, I still ruin one every now and then. But my <laughs> success rate is much higher than it used to be. <laughs> so, how, like, how? Well, you already kind of touched on that, so I'm not going to go into that. Um, I was going to ask, how do you acquire specimens? You kind of already already spoke yeah, to that yeah, point. Yeah, well, I, I don't mind to, to reiterate. It's, it's um, Yeah, so I, I acquire specimens in a few different ways. Many of the specimens we have for research purposes here um, in our labs, and we're, we're using them to understand development or understand um, how anatomy changes. Um, and then other other times people send me animals um, to clear and stain that they have acquired over the years. Maybe they've bought a fixed animal at, you know, from from, a, from an oddity collector or something and they want to see it cleared and stained. Or, um, I've had people send me their pets that have passed away and they you know, want to keep that pet as a, as a memorial and they, they want, um, want it turned into something that they can remember and keep and I've done that for them. Alright, you uh, have to you have to answer this, but have you ever messed up in one of those when someone sent you a, sent you a pet? <laughs> yes, I I have. Um, you know, I've never messed up on a really precious pet. Um, anytime <laughs> I receive an animal, um, I I let the person know that there is a risk to this because. Um, a lot of times when I receive an animal, it may either be on ice or it may have been fixed and I don't know how it was fixed. Yeah. Uh, I've had animals sent to me in the past that were not formalin fixed. And so the, the importance of fixing something in formalin first is that the formalin will link all the proteins together and it'll keep the animal relatively stable during this process. It's a, it's a pretty rough process on, on the organism's tissues. You know, you're breaking down proteins and you're staining it and you're putting it in yeah. acids and things. And to have the animal prepared to undergo that process is very important. Um, but I've received animals in the past that, you know, I, I don't know what I'm getting. Uh, I've received animals that have been on ice and the ice melted halfway through, so there's <laughs> tissue rotting, right? So when I get the animal, it's a little bit, a little mushy. A little funky. That makes it, yeah, a little funky too, yeah, sure. And it makes it a little bit difficult to work with. Um, in those, you know, in those cases, you just have to let the person know that there is a risk involved. Yeah. And I, um, you know, anytime I have a project going in that capacity, I always limit to how many I do. I, I try to take my time and 
you know, slowly go through it. Yeah. Uh, you're not pushing out like one yeah. a day, like. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. I mean, so, uh, you know, I did a large chameleon for somebody recently that was a family pet, and uh-huh. it was um, it it took me about a month to do oh. it from start to finish, and um, you know, I I kind of forced myself to go down this route of selling photographs instead of specimens because I don't want to create a culture where we're just pumping out dead animals all the time. Um, my goal yeah. is to create, you know, you can immortalize a specimen in a photograph. And that's kind of where I try to to push people into going rather than sending me large, you know, large amounts of dead animals because... <laughs> You know, I I am ethically minded, and I I don't particularly like killing things <laughs> unless I have to. Yeah. Uh, especially, uh, you know, and what I really want to discourage is people going out in the wild and, and finding this, you know, beautiful snake or something, and then killing it and sending it to me. I um I I do not want that culture or that business at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, you know, selling a photograph that I spend seven days putting together from taking the photographs to stacking the images to organizing everything and cleaning it up and editing it, um, mm-hmm. I think is a, is a good way to immortalize a specimen and allow anybody to appreciate it, whether you're, you know, whether you're a scientist or whether you're a teacher or whether you're um, a steel worker or, or whether you're an electrician or whomever, um, really, I, I think that, that making these things as a, as, a, as a piece of art and allow many people to appreciate it. I mean, that, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on and, and speak about that, because first of all, I think it's uh, something that a lot of people don't know about. But more importantly, I think it can reach a lot of people who, you know, would think it's cool and that might spur an interest in science. And then most importantly, I know you go about it the right way. Yeah. Like you, you're not... Like you said, you're not looking to just pump out dead animals. You actually do put in the craftsmanship and the time to make sure that you're doing things well for the people you do it, as well as, you know, you respect the specimens that you're staining and working with. You don't want people out there, you know, chopping the head off a snake and then sending you the pieces. Uh, yeah, and like this, this uh... White horns of the <laughs> rhino. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I certainly appreciate that. No, it's a hundred percent true. But you know, I've I've you know, like toyed with some ideas. Like when I die, I just at first my first idea well, was Chris. my first idea was like just fly me up to the Yukon and push my body out of a helicopter, and I'm sure bears will eat me. My second idea was somehow, I hope my family loves me enough to put in the extra money, to get me to South Africa and just drop me in in uh, in Kruger and let the lions and hyenas fight over my body. You know, maybe right. I can squeeze you in there. Maybe they can send you an arm or something and you can stain that. And you can just be like, this was one of my good friend's arms. Yeah. And I swear to God, if you... Sp- if you sell that, if you sell that, I will haunt you. I'll put it on my mantle. It's like sticking out straight. Yeah, <laughs> just middle finger and everything. Like, what, if, if you sell me, automatically the fist will just change into middle finger. Automatically if you sell me. You have it on audio record now. Okay, I will take that as a binding contract. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's crazy. Um... 
this is how you you do this you you do this so uh, how <laughs> do. do how can I reach your service services if I were to send you my cat <laughs> I we have a I, uh, we have a lot of cats here. <laughs> Don't say that. That sounds really bad. That's no, like, no, no. <laughs> uh, oh, we, we, have, we have a surplus of cats. How yeah. could I reach? That's not what he's we'll talking about. We'll actually just send you them alive. Crazy, we have a crazy cat lady that lives Does here. Does Selena need a boyfriend? Uh, no, no. She actually... Um, so just to clarify for anybody listening, Selena is our our cat that we adopted. Um, she's she kind of bosses. She's the boss around here, just so he doesn't think he's trying to pawn off my daughter or something. <laughs> um, well, she is my daughter. Um, but no, uh, there's actually a, a male cat that's been skulking around outside that um, has uh, howled at her in the past. Which Ooh, I, yeah. yeah, I think that she uh, kind of likes it, but you know, I'm kind of the protective cat dad. And I like his style. I like his style. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I'm not one for, uh, what? I'm not one for telling other people what to do, but, uh, I mean, Selena, we're not playing cat matchmaker here, okay? <laughs> That's not my goal. I've got a lot of cats, you can just bring this cat over and then... Well, you've got we too many cats already. See which, whichever of our cat, uh, Selena likes best. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, I've started a bidding war between a feral street cat yeah. and uh, many, many house cats. And let me yes. tell you, Selena's probably going to like the feral man better. That's just Although, how it we is. have we have cats in here. So we have how many cats, Max, do we have in this in this house? I think we're at four right now. So now no, 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 we we have five. Is it? Oh, yeah, it is, let's, it is let's five. Count. Wait, no, it's not. It's four. They don't even know how many cats they we have. Think, we think we have five. But two of them were on, if you know what Reddit is. <laughs> yes. Yes, these are celebrity cats. That tells Selena. Oh, yeah. Say that again. Say that again. The front page of RAL, Reddit's the fifth or sixth most, most visited website in the United States. Yeah. And uh, our cat got how many upvotes? How many views I, in, I like, for, in like 10 hours? I forget how many views, but Katsu was, like, was on the billion. very top. He was the very top one on, on our all. I uploaded that. Good, I got a text at like 11 o'clock at night. It was like, hours. can you upload a picture of my cat? And I was like, <laughs> what? He was like, yeah, it's on top of r slash all. I want to keep it there. So, yep. of course. It had like, like 70,000 upvotes. Yeah. Not just people that press. Isn't it doing a very good blep? Yes. Yeah, it's doing a great blep. And that cat's mom was also, on the top ten. Yeah. So we asked some... <laughs> Some cats. Yeah, these are yeah. internet. These are this is a. Cats. These are celebrity cats. Yeah. Where they got charged, charge your money is what we're saying. You can look at the genealogy of these cats and just see how many of them are in just incredible internet prestige. <laughs> their their genes are really good, so if you know, if you want to bring Selena over. Oh, I don't know. Selena, um, know. <laughs> Selena has already had children, and um, I, she's currently unable to. <laughs> that Aww. is. All the better. <laughs> I don't want to... This can be a topic for another episode yeah, yeah, here. Maybe. But I have I have a bone to pick with some cat people. And uh, we can talk about that another time. Okay. Back to our science-driven our discourse actual, here. Actual topic. <laughs> Do you have any, like, closing points of, of things that you'd like to investigate with this technique? And then maybe, like, I know, like... 
for those of you listening, this man that we are speaking with is on the cutting edge of research. And you know what? You don't get to hear about it. You know why? Because it's that good. It's that good. (laughs) So, without delving into things you can't speak about, do you have any kind of closing points about anything we've spoken about so far? And then just kind of like your personal interests that you'd like to investigate moving forward. Um, you know, I, for, I mean, what, you want general closing remarks or something more specific? I mean, whatever you want. We're not going to edit it, so just... <laughs> well, we can. I didn't expect you to. But, <laughs> That's uh, rude. That's rude. You know me You know me too well to say something like that. This is a high-quality podcast. Yeah, this is premium content, as I always put out. Well, you know, this oh, makes premium. it more fun, right? Like, get the uncut version, you know. Uh, it makes... It definitely makes... makes um, no, so I really appreciate what you guys are doing. I, I think that... More scientists need to be involved in public outreach. I think that it's, um, I think that it's a huge problem that we have, especially here in the United States, that, that it's poor science communication is what's happened to us over the years and, and it's, it's culminated to, to some problems that we currently have. So I think that it's great that you all are, are doing something about that and disseminating rather complicated topics to, to be, you know, for, for anybody to be able to interpret. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I would like to, to, to say that, that anybody can have a passion. You don't have to have a degree to be, uh, uh, you know, a citizen scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are lots of these people out here who have a passion for nature, who collect data and, and, and find people to help them analyze it. There are lots of people who are out here that you know, appreciate nature for what it is and do their, do, do their job to help preserve it and those people are just as important as, as anything else um, and being a being a mentor for somebody else can go a long way um, you know anybody can appreciate science um, anybody can appreciate biology to be more specific we are all living beings and there's nothing wrong with trying to understand how things work it's a it's a beautifully complex system and you know what makes it beautiful is that it is complex and there's a lot to be, uh, there's a lot that you can be interested in. Very well said. A hundred percent, dude. A hundred percent. I know that's a millennial cliche, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to say it one more time. A hundred percent. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, and, you know, I guess, uh, you know, you mentioned some things that we, you know, I, I, you know I, I can't talk about everything that we're doing, but we do have some really cool things coming out over the next Hopefully over the next few months, I've got uh, a few things cooking that are close to being near the end that uh, i crossing my fingers and everything, hope, hoping everything goes well, um, you know, we'll be able to publish and, and uh, you know, it, it'll be really cool. 100%. Oh, God, I'm stuck in the trap now. I can't not say 100%. All right, you need to stop saying that. Yeah, I'll stop. 99%. Yeah. All right. What's our time do you, at? Do you all have any additional questions or anything else? I want to know. I, mean, I want to know. You got to do better about your time because produ- you're, you're doing clown over. clown sign language. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so if if uh, I wanted to, do you uh, advertise your services for 
Yeah, where can we find you? Fish tech, taxidermy. But it's <laughs> not fish taxidermy. I know. I he's not term. making the talking bass on the wall. That's not his I thing. I forgot the term, okay? I'm sorry. Cle- uh, clearing and staining. So where can people find you uh, on your social media for both just like scientific discourse as well as your services that you provide? Yes. So um, I'm pretty, I like to think I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, I, 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 uh, I post a lot on Twitter. I have an Etsy shop that I facilitate all my business through. All of my prints are listed on, on Etsy. Um, and I also, you know, I'm on Facebook, um, I'm on Instagram, and I have uh, a website that you can reach. And it's um, all, all my Twitter hashtags, or uh, my Twitter handle, it's mcgmorph. Um, MCG Morph M O R P H M C G as in grapes Morph Morph It's yeah my initials and then uh, followed by morphology Okay well now that you've said your initials Michael Chase Gilbert Morph <laughs> M C G Morph Yes And is that the same as your Etsy Yep it's the same Awesome Awesome. Well, I'm really pretty jazzed that we had you on here this evening. I think we had a great conversation. Um, I think we covered pretty much all the all the topics. Um, I think people are going to be pretty psyched to, to learn about this. And yeah, you know, I'm not going to say I think uh, one more we time. <laughs> but we should. Like to... We will have you back on. Yeah, yeah. We want to. We want updates. To talk about what were you saying? We have more. This is a very deep topic. Yeah. I think we just, just touched the, the tip of the iceberg, you know? So. That's true. I mean, like, we're about an hour in, and we haven't even talked about kind of deeper ecological ramifications of uh, kind of changes over time. So I think you'd be a perfect person to speak about that with. I would be absolutely happy to, and maybe I can make a better plug for climate change. <laughs> that kind <time> too. <laughs> Because uh, that is a huge factor that 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 um, that I have to consider when looking at these kinds of questions that I have. So, yeah, dude. Well, I just want to really, really thank you for coming on. It was a great time. I'm no, glad thank I got you to for having me. I'm glad I got to speak with you again. It's been a while. <laughs> um, I also want to shout out to my crew here, my co-host Randall. Good times. My uh, producer Max. Hey yo. The logo designer. This is the first time we're going to drop the uh, plug for our new logo this. designer. Yeah. Rusty McDonald, the man is a wizard. Look him up. As well as <laughs> the man upstairs, the man with the computer. <laughs> Justin. Justin McDonald. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please rate and review us on whatever platform you found us on. Maybe even subscribe. I don't know where your passion lies. If you didn't enjoy us, politely let us know. I'd love to hear about it. If you disagreed with anything we said, I'd love to hear that too. Um, I'm always open to uh, discourse about maybe errors we made or things like that. Um, if there's a topic you want to hear about in the future or you have questions, reach out to us on social media. Just look up Bio Breakdown Podcast. We're on Twitter, Instagram, um, as well as Facebook. And we have an email address attached to all those accounts so you can contact us. And then maybe even you want some resources related to the topics we spoke about. 
we're happy to kind of look for those as well. So we hope you guys tune in next time, and then uh, keep tuning in.